uh, Athanasi was slowly um, starving to death because uh, it was such a huge ordeal just to, to get the food that the food would often run out. And once people realized the food would run out before the end of the day, and people would start pushing line. And, and Athanasi was weak and pregnant and she, she wasn't getting any food. So uh, she probably would have died because of that challenge. Um, but I met some years later uh, someone who was involved in the camp at that time and they were explaining the challenges they're facing. Welcome to the Daily Coffee Pro by Mapper Ford Friends. I am your host, Lee Safar, and this is episode two of our five-part series with David Browning from Inveritas. And today we are going to be talking about wet mills and the innovation of mechanical demucilage um, within Africa. So, David, tell us about this story that you have for us, this project that you guys worked on. Yeah, so so long long before um, Inveritas was formed, this is not an Inveritas story, this is pre-Inveritas. Okay. But uh, around about 20 years ago, a little, little less than 20 years ago, um, we realized that there was an opportunity to help smallholder farmers by uh, by moving from semi-washed to fully washed coffee. So going from a world where um, the farmers would uh, have a hand pulper that uh, mm-hmm. they do, we would talk with farmers who would actually um, pound their coffee the rock. That's how they would get the skin and the pulp off. And you can imagine what what that does to to the quality of the of the bean. Um, but the spectral industry was growing. Uh, we could see that that was that was just really taking off in the in the nineties and as we headed in the two thousands. And so there was a, a tremendous appetite for um, uh, for for new coffees and for high quality coffees and. Um, but we saw there were some real barriers to to a lot of smallholders and their ability to get fully washed coffee. There was an innovation that was happening over in uh, in the Americas, um, in Colombia, with mechanical mucilage. It was effectively a much uh, much smaller, much less capital intensive way to do um, to to do the, the processing of the coffee. You didn't need these huge irrigation channels that you've probably seen if you've gone out to mm-hmm. old eighty or hundred years old. Uh, it was a much smaller footprint, much less capital cost. So we really liked it. We thought this was an opportunity for it was something within the realm that uh, smallholder farmers could band together, form a group. Um, they could they could put this in place. Uh, we could show them how to to do it, and you could get these very significant uh, quality premiums, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is what happened. Um, and so I, I went out to the, to the Gates Foundation. Um, they they got excited about the idea, and we decided we we'd do this uh, across uh, four Africa's four, four countries in Africa uh, to actually introduce this new technology. Wet milling had certainly existed for a long time; uh, mechanical demucilage did not. Not only did we have to persuade farmers, who uh, who you can imagine could be uh, in many cases were fairly skeptical about what mm-hmm. this might be. But we also had to persuade coffee companies, um, and uh, and I wish I had taped all these, especially coffee companies at the time, who who swore to me that this uh, this quality would um, would never uh, take off. Um, <laughs> we, we were largely doing it because we we felt like this is a way with within the realm of farmers um, that they would be able to get uh, you know premiums of 30, 40, 50 cents um, per pound. Uh, across across large populations, and so that was that was we were motivated. It also had an environmental benefit. It, it used a lot less water, uh, so that was good from an environmental point of view, mm-hmm. um, particularly places uh, where there's you know where there's increasingly going to be water shortages going forward. Um, but uh, and I know uh, Lee, you and I chatted before we we, we started the, the podcast. The reason I wanted to share the story is not not just that that was uh, ended up being a very effective. Um, 
intervention. And I think in in total now, uh, my my back of the envelope tally would be that's put about ten million dollars um, into the pockets of East African farmers every year now going forward. So it's probably about a hundred wow. million dollars farm gate, uh, additionally to what they were earning before. Um, without counting, there was a, a ripple effect, which is um, once we put the mills in that we put in for for two hundred thousand farmers. Um, other entrepreneurs saw the, saw the benefit, power of this, and so it has led to a whole new industry that, that sprung up. Um, but uh, I do want to talk uh, about one one particular story that, um, uh, which I think just speaks to that. There's a lot of things that go on that we don't we don't necessarily uh, get to see. Um, Melinda Gates um, wanted to come out and see the project, and she asked if she could talk to a farmer. Um, to to really hear what a farmer had to say, and uh, we knew that was going to be very problematic because when when Melinda comes to Africa, you can imagine there are she's got security minders, there are um, government a officials. Posse. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a scrum uh, of about ten to fifteen people, and communications people, and boom mics, mm. and imagine a smallholder farmer um, getting a little overwhelmed. So we decided we'd go out and and just pick a couple of farmers and get their story. And be able to tell it in a very quiet, um, quiet way where they they could just be relaxed and tell their story, and then um, and then we share that with Melinda, which which is what we did, and and uh, and so we went out to to and we we really didn't look very hard. We we pretty much just picked um, a couple of farmers that were close at hand, and one was uh, a woman by the name of Athanasi, um, who, who had a remarkable story that. Um, but but underneath the story is another story. So the she was um, a farmer in uh, in Rwanda when the genocide broke out. She flee uh, Rwanda, where she uh, where she lived uh, in a refugee camp for a few years, then came back. She joined the the project, and um, uh, her income went up, and and sort of life went on. Uh, so the, the project sort of did what it was meant to do. But in, in talking with her and really starting understanding her story and in talking to other people over the years that I've come across years later, uh, there, there's a far more interesting story that evolves. So Athanasi was pregnant at the, the time um, of the genocide uh, and she was suffering um, tremendous morning sickness. So it was almost impossible for her to walk the distance to the border. So you basically had a, you know nearly a million people on the move who had to get by by foot they had to get to the to the extremity of their country um and it was it was highly unlikely that um that she was going to make it and uh and so she basically sat down um under a tree and decided that she she would just die just wait wait for the into home way to come and she would die uh but a stranger uh, uh uh, came and offered his help and, and helped her uh, and helped her get out of the country. He doesn't know his name or probably never see him again, but uh, someone uh, came and and got her across the border to safety to a refugee camp, which was the largest refugee camp of the world, Banaco, um, one of the largest at the time in Tanzania. It literally sprang out of the dust and there was half a million people suddenly in a matter of weeks. There's was, was a half a million city wow. imagine, structure. Uh, no governance, uh, just an extraordinary task to to even sort of manage the human complexity. Uh, adding to that complexity was a lot of Hutus who, who were fleeing uh, the Rwandan army that was coming after them also came into this camp. So now you had um, 
you had Hutuan Tutsi in the same camp with half a million people. Uh, Athanasi was slowly um, starving to death because uh, it was such a huge ordeal just to, to get the food that the food would often run out. And once people realized the food would run out before the end of the day, and people would start pushing line. And, and Athanasi was weak and pregnant and she, she wasn't getting any food. So uh, she probably would have died because of that challenge. Um, but I met some years later uh, someone who was involved in the camp at that time and they were explaining the challenges they're facing. Folks, our first on-demand workshop, How to Become a Coffee Consultant, is now available for you to learn at your own pace for just 50 euros and it comes with a certificate upon completion. Go to mapperforward.coffee forward slash workshops or click the link in the show notes for more details. Support this podcast by supporting our sponsors. And they innovated by uh, by changing to a, a system where all over the camp, people had to elect into little democratic pods and they had to elect one person to come for the whole group. So you, you found a group of people you trusted and one person you trusted in your group. Uh, that effectively shrank the line by 90%. So suddenly you had a much, much smaller amount of lines so you could get through everyone and the amount of food you were giving out was in larger parcels so they, they didn't uh, misjudge how much they had to give to each person. Uh, so ju just that innovation probably saved Athanasi's life. Um, but around that time, um, after that innovation came into place, she probably would have died again because uh, a cholera epidemic started to sweep through the, the refugee camps up in the north, up around Goma, up in what is now the, the DRC. And it was probably only a matter of weeks before it would have hit Banaco. Tens of thousands died in, in the other camp. And given her weakened state, uh, very high likelihood that Athanasi would have died. Um, but I met a person who sort of saw what was happening and, and just realised that with lightning speed they had to put in place um, uh, all the all the sort of preventative measures and hygiene measures and, and training, but just had to be done at absolute warp speed. And the cholera uh, epidemic was was averted. Um, she gave birth to her, her daughter, uh, but as you can imagine, between nearly starving to death and and the way she uh, she described it to us as uh, after a daughter was born, was that the mother was fading away. People could people could mm. see the child, but the the mother was becoming invisible, uh, so she didn't think she would survive. Uh, and so after after dodging a cholera epidemic and uh, and the Hutus who were still um, roaming the camp um, and all of these other trials and tribulations, she named her daughter Zumbatakusi, which means I'll give you a name if you survive. And, um, and wow. she, uh, four of, about four of her children had died. Um, uh, so, so this was uh, the, the state of, of fatalism that she uh, existed in. Um, but she uh, and she and to give birth, she literally just lay down on the ground. She said, when, when I gave birth, I just lay down on the ground with a thousand people watching and gave birth wow. on the ground in the dirt. Uh, so the chance of her daughter surviving were, were slim. Uh, but Zumutakuzi did survive. They went back to Rwanda uh, where they joined the project. And about a year after joining the project, incomes went up. Um, Zumutakuzi um, contracted malaria, and she, she probably would have died in malaria. But with the extra income, uh, Atanasi and all the people in her group had bought uh, health insurance for $10, so $10 for the year. Uh, and with that, she was able to to take her daughter to clinic, she got the prophylactics she needed, was home the next day. Uh, and Zum Takuzi went on and um, uh, went on to uh, you know, uh, continue her schooling for, for many, many years. 
Um, so I, but I say that because so much of this story is just just completely um, invisible, and there are, there are people out there all, all over the world um, doing things, um, and uh, they're they're not necessarily always always talked about. They're, they don't necessarily get um, uh, get a lot of recognition, and they're not looking for recognition. But mm. it is um, it is easy, I think, to to receive so much negative. Um, uh, negative press that the, the negative stories uh, have so much more power to them than, than mm. positives in media that it's it's easy just to forget that uh, that this this actually happens. But um, for me, it's just a remarkable um, example of just so many different people out there who who are doing work and and all of this intersecting with with a single uh, woman's life. But um, uh, but obviously. Uh, this, this is happening every day all over the world. So it's encouraging to to know that and, and obviously for that to be an example for all of us and, and for us to lean in uh, where where we can when the when the opportunity presents itself to help out. And that's that's very much what Inveritas is about. What does it feel like to be you? Like to be in the middle of that kind of profoundness? What does it feel like? Uh, it doesn't feel profound at all. <laughs> I think I, I remember. Um, I remember uh, years ago, um, someone asked Muhammad Yunus about microfinance and uh, did he have some grand, grand plan and have it all come together? And, and he said, "No, I just sort of solved the, the, the next problem that's in front of me." Um, and I think, as you'll see in the in the the, the, the future podcasts, it has been very much just a, a task of. Um, being fairly clear of what you believe and and what you think um, should be worked on, and, and I think that uh, poverty is one of the great moral questions of the of the twenty first century. Um, so it wasn't wasn't hard for me to decide that that's what I want to work on, and then then it's it's really no more magical than um, than finding a problem, solving it, finding other problem, solving it. We we didn't really, I wasn't looking to re-engineer um, sustainability verification. It was more that in our conversations with farmers and with companies, we realised that there was something really important happening, that, that the, the world wanted to understand more about sustainable sourcing, but we just saw there was going to need to be, that something had to be re-engineered. So it was really just solving a problem that was that was in front of us. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that's how it feels like every day is to wake up and, uh, uh, and just solve the problems that are in front of us and then keep moving. Yeah, truly inspiring. In the next episode, we're going to talk about water waste management at wet mills. Tune in for this one, folks. It's another great story. Peace, love, and peanut butter. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in, friends. There are two ways you can support this podcast. Firstly, become a paid member of our YouTube channel. Secondly, you can join our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Both have options for exclusive ad-free content and early release content. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. The Daily Coffee Pro is produced by Map It Forward and the music you're listening to is called Run 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 off of my album Laundry After Midnight. To get older episodes of this podcast, as well as more information on Map It Forward, head to mapitforward.coffee. You can find links and more information in the show notes below.